on democracy versus impunity, one important arena in which that plays out and has played out particularly over the last eight years is in the digital arena. And now we're going to focus this conversation on democracy and that arena with a talk about democracy in the digital era and what's at stake in 2024. So please welcome the Director of Counter Disinformation Strategies at Equus, Roberta Braga, Director of Policy and Engagement at McGill Center for Media, Technology and Democracy, and a member of the Canada 2020 Advisory Board, Sapriya Juvetti, the Executive Director at Reset Tech, Ben Scott, and to lead them in the conversation, Director of Technology Policy at Cap Action, Megan Schall. Thanks very much. Give them a warm welcome. I have the great honor of being joined by the re these three folks today. My name is Megan Shahi, as Braden said. I am the Director of Technology Policy at Cap Action. And I come to this world by way of actually having been inside of some of the social media platforms for the better part of the last decade. I have been promoting transparency and accountability inside some of those platforms, um, namely Facebook, Instagram, and most recently Twitter. And the question that I immediately get is, did Elon Musk fire you? Yes, I'm just gonna put it out there right now. He did. Um, and I wear it as a badge of honor and I see uh, it as an opportunity to actually, to bridge that world with, with this one. And so with that, um, I am excited to, to kick off this conversation. For those that were in the working group yesterday, you know uh, the map that I showed. But for those that weren't, there are a lot of elections happening next year. Um, over 2 billion people will head to the polls. And that is against a backdrop of uh, layoffs, which I know very well, of um, uncertainty in the technology sector at large. New platforms have really quickly and rapidly come onto the scene, such as ChatGPT, generative AI, and then new social media platforms as well. There's Threads, Discord, Twitch, and they're all gonna be going through the sort of big election cycle for the first time. And with that comes a significant and profound responsibility from countries, from governments, from civil society, and from the platforms to act accordingly, to prepare for these elections, but well beyond 2024 to really think about tech accountability. And so that's what we're here to, to think through today. However, there is a lot of noise around this topic. ChatGPT has come onto the scene and it is really the topic du jour, which makes a lot of sense. But what I think is equally as critical is building a shared vocabulary around these problems. And as we go back to our home countries, really using the same words as progressives and the same strategies to tackle them in a nuanced way, depending on what's going on at home. And so with that, I will turn it over to our panelists to really introduce themselves and, and um, share what brings them to this work and then offer a perspective on what they think of as the problem and um, what strategies they, they feel are appropriate in mitigating it and offer that sort of kickoff to the conversation and then we'll go from there. So Roberta, I'll send it over to you. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Roberta Braga. I'm Director of Counter Disinformation Strategies at Equis Research. Um, we are committed to deepening understanding of Latino communities in the United States. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil, so even though at Equis we work primarily domestically um, at the intersection of research, culture, and politics, 
My background is actually in U.S. Latin America foreign policy. And for many years, I worked at a think tank called the Atlantic Council on countering disinformation in elections in the region. Um, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia. Uh, this was around 2018. Now bringing those two worlds together at Equis, where we're looking at not only using public opinion research to understand the real impact of disinformation on communities, but also using narrative analysis and open source investigations to track disinformation, misinformation, hyperpartisan narratives that circulate in a very cyclical way uh, between the U.S. and Latin America and vice versa, and working to turn that research into action and interventions, um, and also harnessing best practices from Latin America in the U.S. and vice versa. Um, defining the problem for me, uh, I think this information is the byproduct of a larger crisis of trust, but it's also a tool for sowing distrust. Um, our research has really shown, despite how we usually think about disinformation, that the majority of people are not believing everything they see online. Um, they are familiar with disinformation narratives, but very skeptical um, and questioning. And I think that thinking about it this way and understanding the differences between disinformation and political propaganda or hyperpartisan narratives is essential for how we then approach countering those different issues. Um, the last thing I would say is I really think that we need to change the way that we talk about who is susceptible to disinformation. Um, I'll talk more about our research as well later, but our polling has shown that it is not low information, low education voters that are both seeing and believing disinformation most often. It is the very highly politically engaged, often college educated affluent voters that both see and believe this information. And demographics don't really influence as much as we think the extent to which people see and believe disinformation more often. It is a question of ideology or values or um, political identity that will determine and also whether they have a conspiratorial mindset or tend to believe conspiracies already that will determine how often they're actually adopting disinformation that they might encounter online. So I'll leave it at that. You. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Supriya Devetti. Um, I'm the Director of Policy and Engagement at the Center for Media Technology and Democracy at McGill University. And uh, part of what um, I do specifically is to try and break down some of the silos, siloed conversations, I should say, that are happening on the academic side of things um, and bringing, uh, you know, the research and the expertise that um, our research uh, and our researchers have um, to the general public um, and to uh, decision makers and government. And Defining the problem, I think, um, from my perspective, is is quite clear, and that is governments, um, particularly in, in North America, but all over the world, really, have ceded the ground to um, a handful of very powerful companies um, and how they control the way we communicate with one another and the kinds of information um, that we uh, consume and then absorb. And, you know, there's a real opportunity um, in Canada, and I know that Ben, you probably talked about a little bit about the UK and what's been happening in some other jurisdictions, but there's an opportunity here to actually put out effective regulations because the way the, the, the entire debate has been framed is like this false binary of either you're regulating big tech and then you're giving up free speech somehow or freedom of expression. 
Um, and it's something that, at least here in Canada, the right has been quite successful at framing that debate and that narrative. And I think that's where progressives have to um, not just punch back, but also reclaim and reown the, the narrative. Because when you look at actual polling, when it comes to uh, regular, you know, everyday people, they're in favor of regulating um, a lot of these social media platforms so that our kids aren't subject to you know, appetite suppressant lollipop ads on Instagram or um, that they don't, you know, fall down um, rabbit holes that are first brought in by, you know, Jordan Peterson, then you get to Andrew Tate, and then before you know it, you're consuming hardcore incel content. Like, these are very real things that are um, of concern to regular people, and yet we tend to have these conversations at a very high academic level using words like platform governance instead of just telling people in plain terms what we're actually going to do um, when it comes to regulation. Ben? Ben Scott, I uh, direct a group called Reset Tech. We investigate, expose, and fight digital threats to democracy around the world. What does that mean? It means that we are working on this fundamental problem that all of us intuitively understand every day when we look in our phones, that the world as we knew it in terms of the relationship between media and democracy is, has exploded. We are living in a world now where most of the people most of the time do not share the same set of facts. We're living in a world where reality is constructed by news sources that are consumed only by a small fragment of the population. We are living in a world where there's no such thing as one public conversation or one narrative that can um, penetrate into the popular understanding. It's hard to wrap your head around what kind of change that, 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 that implies. It's, it's led to the catalyzation of radical movements. It has rapidly normalized extreme views. It has played a major role in the incitement to violence January 6th in the U.S., January 8th in Brazil, the trucker convoy here in Canada, the protests against COVID vaccines. All of these are fed by a new phenomenon of a media environment that is no longer even partly guarded or guided by professional journalists and the ethics of public responsibility, but is now curated by machines, machines that are tuned to attention optimization and the maximization of ad revenue. A, a media that is controlled not by publishers, but by platforms that have a global reach the likes of which no media company in the history of the world has ever had. These are all novel problems, and we as progressives need to understand them not as a digital or a technology problem, but as something that cuts across every issue that we work on, whether it's climate or immigration or cost of living, because you cannot develop consensus or reach democratic solutions in a self-governing society if you cannot talk to people about the same set of facts with a common set of arguments. This is a fundamental challenge that we face and, and one that de deserves the urgency uh, that it's getting on this stage. Thank you.
So Priya, I'll turn it over to you. Um, would love to hear about approaches Canada specifically has taken on the regulatory front and maybe lessons or opportunities to share with the group um, how C-18, the online news law that uh, recently went into, became law in, in June of this year that requires platforms to pay publishers to host news content actually has led to Google and Meta pulling all news off platforms for Canadians uh, or for, for anybody located in Canada. Just this morning, I went to my own profile and navigated to New York Times and really saw the, the message that you're in Canada right now, we, we're not showing you news. Uh, and it was very jarring to see. And I'm curious from your perspective, how have you navigated that? And what would you impart to folks around the room? Yeah, so um, C-18, just to give folks a bit of a, a backgrounder, it's uh, called the Online News Act. And basically what it does is that it compels large tech platforms to enter into uh, negotiations with uh, publishers or with news providers. And what's really interesting is that you did mention that and they did, you know, uh, Meta and Google have pulled all news. Um, and you can't, you know, whether you're on Instagram or whatever your platform of choice, chances are you're not going to be able to see Canadian news. And that's had a huge impact for, uh, you know, regular folks that are trapped in like a wildfire situation and you need to know the latest information and you can't get it because now you're being blocked. Um, what's what's interesting about this is that the Meta and Google were already paying publishers. Um, they had all sorts of deals cut across a wide variety of publishers. And so they were already doing this. And what the government came in and, and said, and you know, it was modeled largely off of uh, Australia's uh, very similar bill, um, in which you know, they're like, okay, you have these deals, let's get some rules and transparency around them. And then we can so that these deals are fair and that you're not only just playing um, larger players, but some of the smaller uh, publishers are, it can enter into these negotiations as well. And then all of a sudden you had um, the, the, the platforms being like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, that's not what we want to do. And they just took their ball and they went home. And the reason why they did that is because to some degree, when they took their ball and went home, and I'm speaking specifically about Meta here in Australia, they were able to achieve some concessions from the Australian government. Um, presumably they're trying to do the, I'm not in their you know, mindset, so I don't really know, but presumably they're trying to do the same thing in Canada. And Canada right now is being used very much as a warning shot because other jurisdictions all over the world are now, you know, mulling their own policies that are very similar to Canada and Australia. And, you know, poor little Canada is just caught in the crossfire, being bullied by big tech over this. Um, when the reality is, I'd imagine, you know, big tech is much more worried about uh, jurisdiction like the UK going, uh, going forward with, with something similar or the state of California. Um, or Brazil, or India, or South Africa, and then all of a sudden, it's a much larger, unwinnable fight for them, unless they just really do want to get out of the, you know, business of news, in which case, if your whole mission is to inform people, and you're getting out of news, are you even still doing your mission? Probably not. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Roberta, I'll, I'll, I think that's a natural transition. We, we've heard a lot today about the Global South and the, the shared understanding that there is a lack of representation in this room and in this forum uh, from, from those countries. We are, we are lucky to have Roberta with us today, who uh, has, has really developed a, a deep set of expertise specifically in, in Brazil, but 
all over the world um, on disinformation and, and strategies to really combat that. What lessons would you offer to this this group? Um, and what would you say is really the way to bring the conversation to those countries and bring those countries along with us in our progressive work going forward? Um, I think the first point I would I would mention and make here is that those countries are already having those conversations and they're having them extensively. I think a lot of the things that sometimes we get so kind of bogged down in looking at our own ecosystem that we forget that these issues are very much borderless. Uh, a friend of mine, when I first started working on this set of set of issues said, um, this information or information disorder is a borderless phenomenon with limited jurisdiction. Countries only have jurisdiction within their own borders. Platforms only have jurisdiction within their own platforms. But that doesn't mean that we can't do a better job of trying to solve this problem outside of the silos in which we operate. Right now, Latin America specifically is a breeding ground for really creative, innovative solutions to some of these issues that go beyond content to counter content. Um, I presented some of those in yesterday's working group. Uh, civil society is really robust in a lot of these countries where I've worked, and they're trying to address root causes, um, including training influencers to depolarize their own information ecosystems by using nonviolent communication tactics, um, working to build collective memory around false narratives through museum exhibits um, and reconciliation tactics. And so I think that there is a lot more that we can be doing to share knowledge. And I'll say a lot of what's happening is fact checkers are talking to fact checkers, media are talking to media, government's talking to government. Um, but I don't think that we're kind of leaving those bubbles to really address this problem from all of the ways that it should be addressed. The last thing I would say is um, this is really apparent with Latino communities, both in the US and other countries and in the region. I expect it's very similar with diaspora communities in other parts of the world as well. But um, the trends, the narratives, the networks, and the actors' tactics are very much similar, if not outright the same, and playing out in very similar ways across different countries. Um, we saw that been mentioned in the US and Brazil around our twin insurrections. Um, in Brazil, it happened on a Sunday. There were no Congress in session, in session and they actually invaded all three seats of power. Um, but if you were tracking what was being said, uh, they were very much, the movements were very much amplifying each other. The narratives were very, very similar. And in fact, I'll say um, these are not new narratives. They're very predictable. I think that's a positive thing about disinformation is that it is a bit predictable. And even so far back as... Um, 2018 elections, but even further back, um, for those of us who were looking at things back then, we saw the same master narratives that we see now, child indoctrination narratives, election fraud narratives, anti-media sentiment, the sowing of distrust in institutions, those all were already playing out even back then. So I think that um, kind of figuring out how we can work a little bit better together to not recreate wheels, but just replicate successful models that might be working uh, is a great first step. Right. Ben, over to you. I think your role as executive director of Reset really highlights the importance of civil society in this conversation. 
And yesterday in the working group session, I was very pleasantly surprised to see how many folks were, were from various civil society orgs from around the world. And so of, of all sizes. Um, and so what would you offer to maybe those folks as they go home and they navigate these digital democracy issues that you have seen work for Reset or alternatively, maybe not? So I want to pick up on a thread from this morning's panel about message. And I want to say we're getting it all wrong. We are all in this room, a bunch of clever foxes with our advanced degrees and our political junkie habits. And we like to talk about the complexity of problems. And we focus in this context, mostly on the implicit problems of digital media markets. We have identified that the myth of the internet as a free marketplace of ideas is utterly bankrupt. When you have a small handful of platform companies who make money based on attention optimization, not every piece of content is treated alike. It favors that which is extreme. It favors that which is sensational. It repeats all of those things to the point that it becomes normal and then it ratches up again. It divides us into little communities and keeps us focused on that which keeps us clicking. That implicit problem radicalizes, that implicit problem divides, polarizes, reduces people's understanding of the world around them, focuses on five-minute sound bites and little memes, destroys our political culture. That is a problem we in civil society call disinformation. Now I'm gonna lean in here because it's your take-home point. We have to stop using that word, friends. Because when you use the word disinformation with people outside the clever fox circles, what they hear is, you want to stop me from speaking. And we get trapped in a debate about censorship. This debate, it's not about censorship. The problem is not that there are radical views on the internet. There have always been radical views in our societies. That's what democracies are about. The problem is that those views are being referred. They're being given preferential treatment. They're being monetized. They're being elevated in the public eye in ways that are very profitable for those companies, very bad for democracy, and very hard to understand if all you're doing is staring at your phone. But stop talking about this in that way. We have to understand it. If you want to understand it about how to shape your, shape your political communication strategy, you come talk to me in the coffee break. We've done a lot of work on that. What we really need to do is we need to start talking about the explicit problems. What do those look like? The Canadians are talking about one right here. It's called monopoly. It's called the destruction of the news business, which is important for democracy by monopolies. Monopoly is an explicit problem that people can wrap their heads around. We need to talk about national security. We need to stop talk about state-sponsored information operations by the Russians and the Chinese, which are operating on our platforms and victimizing our people to the advantage of our nuclear-armed adversaries. That's outrageous. That's a national security problem. We need to be talking about public safety, incitement to violence, the radicalization of individuals online who commit violent acts offline. That is pe something people care about, public safety. And finally, child welfare. Anybody who has a kid or has ever been one in the internet age knows that smartphone addiction is a real thing and the mental health issues that children suffer from experiencing social media and high doses, very real and widespread. Doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left, you care about the welfare of your children. 
Those are explicit harms, national security, public safety, child welfare, monopoly. Those are the words we need to be using when we talk about this issue in public. That's the policy agenda we need to be addressing. I think I would be remiss not to uh, to mention on a, on a technology panel, AI. Uh, we, we have following us um, a really fantastic, very focused discussion on on AI, and so uh, you know more to come on that. But would love to open it up to the panel on how you see uh, the rise of things, and you know, like ChatGPT and, and the ability to create a deep fake in in mere seconds, and the advent of this technology in a really rapid and scaled way. To where you know, when when Meta launched Instagram, it was a a slow rollout to people kind of over time and, and as they expanded to different countries and things like that. When Microsoft or Google turn on their um, AI assistant, it is instantly in millions and millions of people's pockets and hands um, with really no scale up, scale up time at all. And against a backdrop of 2 billion plus people voting next year, how are you guys thinking about that intersection? And, you know, that, that fear that is really driving a lot of people to search for policy solutions and think about preparation for next year. So I'll start off, if that's okay. Um, I think at least in the Canadian context, um, if we're talking about any sort of regulation of online platforms, um, you can model it in a way so that you're doing risk-based assessments. Um, and if you're doing that properly, then actually a lot of the harms by AI will be captured by an online safety bill or an online harms bill. If you have robust data protections, right, you're never going to stop the actual technology that creates a deep fake. But if you have robust data protections and you have good platform governance, then you can A, stop it a little bit at the source insofar as your image can't necessarily be used um, to create the deep fake. And then if you have an online um, harms bill that looks at platform, then you're taking the, the actual distribution of that deep fake out of the mix too. So it may be created, it may be shoddily created ideally, so it's not exactly your face because you have better data protections. And then it's not being pummeled everywhere through feeds all over the internet because the platforms are better regulated and they, and they can't um, you know, just spew that out into the world. And so that's where I think there is a lot of reason to be optimistic. Um, and it shouldn't just all be doom and gloom because we have an opportunity here and we should use it, seize it. I'll add one point, which is, this is a great issue for us to talk about. We need to talk about it in the right ways. Let me, t let me give you one example. We've just done a major investigation of Russian information operations in Eastern and Central Europe on behalf of the European Commission. In the first year after Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, 165 million people in the European Union saw a Kremlin, an explicitly identified Kremlin source on social media running largely on American platforms, pumping out propaganda supporting its illegal war. That content got 16 billion views. Those numbers are low-end estimates. That's just what we can see from the data that's available. Companies don't provide full data access so that we can't see what's actually happening on their platforms. We need to be 
really aggressive in pursuing uh, messaging around those issues that work best, and we will get to the underlying problems. We, we need to work together to develop new and better communication strategies for dealing with radicalization in the meantime. And, and we'd love to follow up with folks. There's a network of organizations out there that are doing fantastic work on this issue. You just got to get plugged into that system and, and, and benefit from some of the learnings in the community. The um, only thing I would add to this, jumping off of what Ben said, is, you know, I remember when this happened a few years ago around the conversation on this information. It became a hot topic. A lot more actors began working on this problem. Um, and I feel like it causes this effect where the more we amplify the issue, the bigger it becomes in people's mind. And it kind of rolls into this snowball effect. Um, and so I think we have to be cognizant of, for example, in our context, um, when it comes to Latinos and disinformation, often people will attribute the way that Latinos in the U.S. are voting to disinformation. They're saying we're more vulnerable or we're susceptible when really the core issue is that political campaigns, parties are not engaging with Latino voters year round. They're not listening to Latino voters. They're not where Latinos vote, where Latino voters are consuming information. And so there's this sort of, um, I hate to use this word, but like fetish, fetishization of disinformation as being a cause of why Latinos vote in a certain way. And so I would caution us to also think about how the conversation around AI can lead to that. I say that while also saying that I think that a lot of these new technologies amplify deeper societal issues. When it comes to AI, we've already seen how um, ChatGPT and some of these other tools are amplifying biases um, and stereotypes of minority communities on the internet. Um, and so I, I just, I think that there is some like care that we need to take in making sure that we're not um, amplifying this to, certain, to a certain extent. Uh, one last sort of, and I hope I don't misquote this, but there was an interesting study done out of Stanford a few years, I think it was a few years ago, on um, political violence and how much groups perceive the other side as being open to political violence. And the research said that we overestimate by 300 to 400 percent how much the opposing side is willing to engage in political violence. And so I think there is a silent majority that we need to tap more into so that we don't let uh, this silent, more extreme minority kind of shape the conversation. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it. Great. I'll offer maybe a, a final, uh, we're, we're nearly at time, but um, final words from, from each of you three addressing this uh, global audience here. Ben, we start with you. Don't be afraid to get involved. I think sometimes these tech issues are they obstruct people from 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 engaging because of the language around them. But I think, you know, underlie the points that Priya just made, the AI debate is really the democracy debate. The big tech debate is the democracy debate. The platform accountability debate is the democracy debate and it's about the security of our communities, the safety of our friends and family and it, the, the welfare of our societies as we try to solve these, these hard problems. And, and that requires a media system that works for the public, and we need to address it using um, the right set of, of, of changes in the relationship between these giant companies that control today's media markets and our democratic governments. I'd agree with everything you said there. Um, and I would just add that 
you know, I'll leave on what I what my last point was. There's reason to be optimistic. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, there are options. There are better options. There are better ways, and we should lean into those. And as progressives, we should own this in a way um, that Ben described earlier about the way we 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 message this and putting it on um you know the right side of the political flank to say well we don't actually want better public safety we don't want to protect our kids we don't want better national security because that's an argument that they're going to lose um but if you get into the weeds about you know algorithms and how they work it's just it's going to fly over people's heads and people are going to tune out and then the debate becomes a false binary of free speech versus regulation and that's just false and we can do better. Um, from my perspective, it is that there is no one right way, one silver bullet solution for dealing with information disorder online. Uh, research, academic research and um, implementation shows that a variety of tactics do work. They do move people away from believing that false information is false. Fact checking slash debunking works. Inoculation works. Um, proactive, good, fact-based communication works, engaging with people and depolarizing works. And so I think we all have a role to play. And it's not always the role of being at the front lines of countering disinformation. It might just be doubling down on our competitive advantage and continuing to do what we already do in a better way. Um, Great. Thank you all very much. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation with many of you going forward. Thank you. Thank you.